Friday, June 28th at Hungry Brain in Chicago. It's our Pride Show and podcast recording. Music, drag, interview, comedy, panel, and Q&A. Sponsored by Rowan Tree Counseling. Get your tickets at wildandsublime.com or go to links in the show notes. I just wanted to have sex all the time, but your junk stops working after a while, you know? So it becomes like you're on this hunt that is never ending. It's pretty uh, brutal. It's the not me syndrome. It's not going to be me. I'm not going to be that. I have seen folks when maybe they're doing it on a Friday or Saturday or Saturday or Sunday, whatever, but then it turns into Monday, then maybe Tuesday afternoon. And then before you know it, they're hustling for money to do it. Around 89 to 92% of people that do it the first time are going to do it the second, and then it just keeps getting more and more and more and more. Welcome to Wild and Sublime, a sexy spin on infotainment, no matter your preferences, orientation, or relationship style. Based on the popular live Chicago show, each week I'll chat about sex and relationships with citizens from the world of sex positivity. You'll hear meaningful conversation, dialogues that go deeper, and information that can help you become more free in your sexual expression. I'm sex educator Karen Yates. Today we'll be talking with a former crystal meth user and a West Hollywood commissioner about femsex, mixing drugs and sex, and how this culture continues to grow and how it's costing lives. Keep listening. It's our podcast birthday month. We've been doing this a year. Help support our work bringing sex-positive insights, news, and conversations to your earbuds. Join the Afterglow, our membership program on Patreon, starting at just $5 a month. You'll get bonus content like Q&A sessions with sexperts, my audio creator notes, special announcements, and more. And this birthday month, all subscribers get access to our webinar, But Basics, with sex educator Ren Graybert. Our intro to posterior play that will have you shaking your booty in no time. If a monthly membership is not your thing, if you like to hit it and run, consider throwing some bucks in the tip jar in appreciation for our work. More info is in the show notes. Hey folks, today we'll be talking about a disturbing yet very important issue that not many people know about, chemsex or party and play culture where drugs such as crystal meth, ketamine, and GHB get rolled into sexual activity, primarily among gay men, but also beyond that population. While Party and Play, or PNP as it's known, has been around for many years, it's had a market increase in the past decade due to dating and hookup apps like Grindr, where people can actively seek out potential sexual partners into chemsex, as well as using the dating apps themselves to purchase drugs. Deaths from overdosing are common, as well as a steep decline in quality of life as use increases. And as an aside, this is one part of a much, much greater issue beyond chemsex. In the U.S., drug use and overdosing, especially through opioids, has become a national crisis. Today, we'll be talking with recurring guest, Leather Daddy title holder, director and dancer Tom Pardo about his experience and recovery from crystal meth use. We'll also be chatting with Jimmy Palmieri, West Hollywood Human Services Commissioner, producer of the documentary Tweakers and the founder of the Tweakers Project, which actively helps people seeking to break their reliance on crystal meth. Jimmy is also the producer of alcohol and drug-free events in L.A. Plus, you'll also hear about my brief encounter with meth while I was in college. Have a listen. Tom, welcome. Hi, Karen. Good to see you again. 
or talk to you again. It's good to see you. <laughs> it's good to hear from you. You've been on the show before. Yes. And you discussed in one of the last episodes you were on getting sober off of crystal meth. And I'm really so grateful that you are willing to come on today to talk about it again, except a little more in depth because you have been involved in the sober scene in LA around meth. And I think you have a lot to talk about here and help folks understand. And then later we'll be bringing on Jimmy Palmieri to talk more about the big picture within West Hollywood. So Tom. Yes. <laughs> Do we have to talk fast? No. <laughs> oh, thank you. Tom is one of my oldest friends. So he's, he's just sort of like, he's rolling with it here. He's like, Karen, calm down, Karen. So how old were you? When you were first, <laughs> how old were you when you were first introduced to meth and what were the circumstances? What did the whole scene look like? Okay. Well, first of all, I didn't know there was a scene when I first was introduced. I must have been 26 or 27. And this was in like the 90s? When was this? It would have been, yeah, 89 or 90. Okay. I had left Chicago. I moved to California. I had gotten cast in a chorus line in California, and I had a month to uh, get myself into shape, try to take as many dance classes as possible, and get ready to do that. So the first night I was in LA, I went to a bar called the Apache in the Valley. There were like three people in the bar, and one of them was this short little guy, and he was on the dance floor, and I went out on the dance floor with him, and he gave me a hit of ecstasy, and then I moved in with him that night. And it turned out that he was a dealer of this thing called crystal mass. And I had no idea. And you had no idea. And that launched me into a whole month of using, exploring, changing clothes, often staying up for days. That was my introduction to crystal mass. Did you have any idea at that point that it was... Did it feel to you like you had just stumbled into something or did you start? Because now it is so woven into pickup culture. At that point, did you feel like you were an outlier or was it already starting to get its hooks into gay culture? No, I think it had already been had its hooks into it. I, I was just maybe behind the curve a little bit, perhaps. Or, you know, I mean, Coke was really big earlier and and I was doing every other drug except heroin at the time. So I just felt like it was another cool party drug that was the first moments or the first weeks on it were incredible. Superpowers were implanted into my body and I could just stay up forever. It changed my mood completely. And I just felt somebody who was, I was filled with so much power and it was, you know, it didn't take long for it to turn crazy, but the very beginning Parts of it were, this is, I think this is true for a lot of meth users, that you're constantly going to chase that first time you use for the rest of the time that you're on meth. And it's never quite the same as the first time you use it. At least it wasn't for me. I think that's true of a lot of addictive substances, that you're always yeah. chasing the original high. Yeah. I actually ended up going to one dance class in that whole month that I was there. I was a little distracted with the meth use and this guy I had met. So I had to go off and do a chorus line. And uh, I remember taking it with me and I always had a little bag of it and I would sprinkle it into my Mountain Dew before I went on. So before I went on stage, 
And so I would have this can of Mountain Dew that had meth laced in it. And all through the rehearsal process and everything, the director would keep saying, oh, what's, what's going on with your eyes? What's happening? He goes, you have crazy eyes. And I said, oh, no, no, it's, it's a choice I'm using for my character. But it was funny, like during the ballet combination, da, 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 for the men's at the very beginning of the show, I would get, I would jump so high because I was on meth that I would be like a beat behind by the time I came down, which was tricky to deal with. You know, and I joke about it, but it, it turned tragic pretty quickly, for sure. So when you said turn tragic, what did you mean? First of all, it, it started to take over as my primary relationship. I mean, even when I was doing eight shows a week, for a few months, it became like, I can't wait till Sunday night and to finish that last show. And then I got in the car and I drove to LA and I would lose my car almost every weekend. I would lose, I forgot where I put my car, left my car. I had people had to, they had to drive down from Santa Maria and Solvang to uh, help me find it. And you really, you know, I just never stopped thinking about it after a short period of time. It's like, when do I get to do that again? When am I going to play more? And, and then just trying to keep it in my system as often as I could and try to maintain some level of normal life, which doesn't really exist once you get on meth. Yeah. So back in the early 90s, were you just scoring or was it very much tied up with hooking up, meeting guys? It was completely connected to... I just wanted to have sex all the time. And I also liked changing clothes a lot when I was on it and other people's clothing. I took it, you know, I take their clothes, clothes that were smaller than the size of my body were appropriate for me, but I did just want to have a lot of sex and I would wander the streets at all hours of the morning and have in my head, this knowledge that all the cars that were driving by and the people that were out were also found meth. It became just a whole different reality where it just it's consuming. It consumed me and I just went with it. But, you know, in terms of, of picking up or hookups and all of that, that came along with it, but it certainly didn't become, it wasn't my everything hmm. because then your junk stops working after a while, you know? So it becomes like, you're on this hunt that is never ending and you're just getting a raw dick and nothing's working. It's pretty uh, brutal. Yeah. What did you mean by changing clothes? Uh, that was just a, I, I don't know how many people have that will have that in common with me, but I just liked tighter clothing that, and stuff that wasn't mine. You become like a thief, really. Okay. So that's what I you just, mean. You became I'm, like a thief. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a hooker, a hooker thief. <laughs> I like stealing people's stuff and wearing it, I guess. And mm -hmm. the tighter, the better. Right. I, I think what you're kind of getting at here, at least how I'm hearing it, is when the meth took over, you were catapulted into a different world, a different way of relating to the world. Absolutely. And so you were on a drug-fueled high and everything was getting mirrored back to you where the rest of the world was on meth. And it was great because you were part of a meth world and wearing tight clothes was a part of it. Right. That was in the early stages. And then it turned into your shadows and the people and the trees and the, the weird 
psychotic stuff that just creeped in and well yeah i would i would actually i want to hear about that talk a little bit about that because i want to hear what kind of drove you to your bottom well after that show had finished i moved to phoenix and met a nurse who was my crystal connection and he introduced me to a escort service where they asked me to or she said you should go meet this guy and I said, well, okay. And he goes, but he goes, be careful because he's got HIV. And I said, oh, okay. And when I was on meth, when I'm using, well, all through my 20s when I was using anyway, and when AIDS hit, I, I didn't have any concern ever that I would become HIV positive. And I truly felt like I didn't give a shit. And that's kind of how I operated. I never had protected sex. I went and I met this guy. And we started, I, I had to do an interview, right, to work at the escort service. And so I guess all interviews for that kind of thing is where you actually just have to have sex with them. So we were playing around. And at one point, I won't get too graphic here, but he was on his knees. I was standing in front of him. And he looked up at me at one point, And my junk and his mouth were all bloody. Blood, blood, blood everywhere. And we stopped for a brief second. And then we burst into laughter and ran to the bathroom and cleaned up and kept going. And this was a normal, a normal, a normal everyday, everyday occurrence, yeah. occurrence on methamphetamines. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I was doing that line of work and teaching 11 step aerobics classes a week on crystal meth. How did everything devolve? I mean, because of course that sounds very intense, but I also know it got worse. Yeah, I would spend hours and sometimes days in, I had rented a, a room at someone's home. And I remember I got stuck in the corner, was just trapped in the corner of the bedroom on the floor. And I couldn't move. And yet I was in, my insides were moving really fast. And I was trying to orchestrate how I needed to stop this. Like I need to do something to myself to stop this. It has to stop. And that lasted several, several hours. And it makes me shake when I talk about it. Even today, that's like 28 years later, my, my body goes into like, like that. Hmm. Anyway, I ended up taking myself to the doctor and I went there because I needed to know if I was HIV positive. And back then, it was like you had to wait a few days, and you had a number, and it was very anonymous. So I get the phone call, and there's a lot of sweating going on between those two times. And I get the call, and they said I was HIV negative. And I didn't believe them. I asked them if we could do that again. They said, yes, we did it again. And they came back negative again. And at that point, I just dropped everything, and I moved back to my parents' house in the Midwest. And that's where I started to get sober. Wow. So you live in L.A. now. I think I'd like to bring on Jimmy to continue the conversation. We can talk about the scene now in West Hollywood. So welcome, Jimmy Palmieri. Hi. Hi. Jimmy, you are the Human Services Commissioner in West Hollywood, founder of the Tweakers Project, which we're going to talk about in a moment as well as your, your work as a, as a party organizer, a sober party organizer. I also like to talk about that with you. 
Wow. Okay, Jimmy, the first thing I learned about you is that you had helped produce a documentary, I think now 14 years ago, called Tweakers, which is a slang name for someone on crystal meth. 14 years ago. So Tom is talking about his experience in the early 90s, where crystal meth is beginning to be a thing. I mean, who knows how long it has been in the scene prior to that. Now, you felt called in 14 years ago to do a documentary called Tweakers. Had the Tweakers Project, which you also founded to help folks find sobriety, had that even happened yet? Or was the documentary the first thing? And what made you get interested in this subject? So thanks for having me on, first of all. Uh, it's great to meet you. And Tom, great to see you and hear your story. I got out here in 94 and I had never seen crystal meth. I, I did every drug possible in New York. Luckily, I don't have the disease of addiction, but you know, I can remember shooting heroin up in the balcony of Studio 54 with someone's dirty needle, not even thinking. So I got out here, left a 14-year relationship, started to date, and everyone was doing this magic powder. And I thought it was Coke. I honestly thought it was Coke. And I'm like, you know what? I played this game before, but I'm hanging out with you folks. Do what you need to do. And the one guy that I was very interested in, that was I was dating him actually, and he started to smoke it. And I started to notice a really bad change in his, how he acted when that happened and come to realize it was meth. And, um, you know, I probably wasn't in, in a crowd that was anywhere near interested in sobriety or, or any of that. So meth for me, goes back as far as I had someone that I cared about very much just go off the deep end. And I thought, you know what, I'm playing around enough and uh, I'm watching so many of my brothers get in trouble and I'm just not. So maybe, just maybe I can be not a catalyst, but sort of be someone that might be able to get something out to the public. And there, there became tweakers. I had a cable TV show and it was fairly popular. And I did a lot of interviewing with with authors. And one of the books that was sent to me was Tweakers. And I read it. And so much of this was resonating. You know, I had seen it. I saw it, saw it firsthand. And I asked if, if I could buy the rights. And they gave it to me for $1, literally $1, and said, do what you can to help people. And that was from Allison Publications. And I worked on it for a long time with the, with the two women that I was doing my show with. And so they produced it, and I directed it. And it, it wound up you know, we were hoping, I don't know, maybe a hundred people would see it, but the city gave it a premiere at the Silver Screen Theater. And I think that holds like 300 people, maybe 400, maybe. And the response was like a thousand. So we had to actually set up a plasma in the lobby for the overflow, which was incredible for me. We wound up going all around the country with it. And, you know, again, lesbian centers, even police departments were showing it to, to crowds. And I thought, all right, some well-known gay actor came up to me during one of the screenings and goes, you can't just let this be a documentary. You have to move on it. And I thought, all right, let me think. And that's how the Tweakers Project started. I'm like, maybe we can navigate folks that can't find their way through to, to services because it's really a tangled web. And that's what we do. No one's ever been paid. Everyone is a volunteer. And we've put, I think it's like 374 people into rehab and we only are on Facebook with, but at this point have, I don't know, six or 7,000 members. I've had four marriages in that group, by the way, they met in the group and married in long-term marriages, but you know, I don't have kids. And I look at this as, all right, these are all my family. They're all off from all over the world, but 
at some point or another, I've had contact with each and every one of them and they're trying to do it. You know, they're trying to do it. Wow. That is uh, really extraordinary. And thank you. Thank you for doing that. Would you say in your estimation, the work that you're doing is primarily in the LGBTQ communities? Who is it reaching, would you say, primarily? So primarily it's gay men. And I did a a female campaign and everyone said, you're wasting $15,000. Why are you doing this? Women are not going to respond. The week that I did the female campaign, we had a 10 to 14% increase in membership in the Tweakers Project Facebook page. And it was women and some were lesbian, some were, were het. And they all said, no one did this. Uh, you know, we don't, this is the first time that I see myself. It was a woman and she was holding up boxing gloves and she's just like, I'm winning the fight against meth. And it just clicked with a lot of females. And, you know, we have, I don't want to lie. We don't have an enormous percentage of straight folks, but we do have a percentage. And I would say maybe it's 10%, you know, of the group. But the, the, the lion's share is gay men and bisexual men. And this will go back to what Tom was saying. It's a libidinous drug in that it makes you, you become horny on it and you can have more sex partners. And you may not even be able to ejaculate, but still you think you're in the whole process of tribal, you know, tribalness. You're with your folks. You're with your peers. You're, I feel so sexy on it and yet not on it. I feel like I don't belong. And I've heard that. I've interviewed probably... I would say 1,500 meth users, tweakers, you know, as we call them. And there's a very, that's a common denominator. And Tom, one of my very dearest friends that's sober now, when he was using, he worked in a dungeon and he would take his client's clothes and wear them. And he, and I I said, why? I want, like, what was this? And he said, (laughs) I don't want to be myself. So I pictured myself as them when I'm wearing their clothing. Mm-hmm. And that hit me so hard. I remember going to his apartment one day when he was really ill with on meth and he had 2000 pairs of Calvin Klein underwear in boxes. And I said, what's this? And he said, well, when the aliens come, I need to have a clean pair of underwear. Ooh. I have to tell you, you know, I've been, I've been reading a lot as preparation for this and it is, it's freaking chilling. It's a chilling drug, and as well as the fact that, you know, ultimately we're talking about meth, but we're also talking about GHB, G, and ketamine, K, and just how it all rolls together in the party culture, and how it's a swir- it's a swirl, right? And you're gonna trip over all of it if you're in the culture, right? And you're going in the rabbit hole. I mean, that's just what it is. Unless you're looking to get well. And I never say better because I don't know what is better. I just know that someone can get well. I'd like to talk a minute because you you brought up the fact that the drug is libidinous. You know, I see that one of the largest populations or one of the populations that's really growing is men, say, as they're getting a little older, like men in their 40s, as they're maybe losing their ability to stay hard or, you know, maybe not feeling uh, like they're as fab as they used to be. Mm. And so that's an aspect. I love that you brought up the tribal nature, the community nature. What are some of the other things that do you think go into the party and play culture? Oh, for God. Well, it's gay men getting older, period. Gay men getting older is tragedy. So we have this, we're in this culture that we still have to look 
You know, we have to have our bodies have to be tight. We have to look great. We have to blah, blah, blah. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of guys out there that are like, I'm not going to grow up. I'm not going to fade out. I want to keep up. Plus, a, a lot of, there's a lot of us too who socially have had nothing else but the party. Just the party is everything. It's the big identifier for a lot of gay men. Get to the white party, get to the black party, keep going to those parties. Well, use Matthew, at least you can stay up through the whole thing. But you see these guys turn so quickly. I've been in CMA, Crystal Meth Anonymous, for a long time. And they go out, they come back. They go out, they come back. Which is fine, I guess. The revolving door has allowed some of us to see people lose their souls just a bit at a time. Just chipped away. And their, their spirit and their light. Everything about them just gets sucked out of their bodies. And then you, you know, you end up with this shell of a person who had no intention of going there. They certainly didn't want to speed up their mortality rate. I don't think that was intentional, but it, it, it's an unfortunate side effect that keeps taking people over. I think it starts as being like, I feel valid still. I feel seen. I feel like I'm keeping up. Do you think it's a choice, though? And, and, and what I mean by that is I remember I used meth once in the 80s. It was presented to me at a party. At first, I thought it was Coke. I was told, no, it's not. It's something called methamphetamine. <laughs> I don't think they said methamphetamine. I think they just said it's meth. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, they're like, it's like speed. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I didn't go to sleep for the next 18 hours. And I felt right. like I was a superhero. Yep. And I thank God I never came across it again. I just wasn't in a culture where I saw it ever again. But I had no clue. And I do have a sense that part of this, part of the story is people just are so unaware. I mean, maybe I'm naive. But I think there's a general unawareness of the rabbit hole. Is that mm. true or not? I mean, do you think people are like, hell yeah, give me the meth? I don't think you're wrong in in them just not knowing or seeing it. Or I think believing that it would happen to them is probably the biggest one. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes people will be on it for three years and they still are talking like they don't have a problem with it. It's not happening to them and it is happening to them i want to respond to that because tom is completely right it's the not me syndrome it's not going to be me i'm not going to be that i'm not going to be go down there but i have seen folks and we call them weekend warriors where maybe they're doing it on a friday or saturday or saturday or sunday whatever but then it turns into monday then maybe a, a tuesday afternoon and then before you know it they're hustling for money to do it i've seen it in this city I have seen folks, you have to remember, gentlemen of a certain age, 45, 55, 65, have lost many of their peers. HIV took 13 of my 14 friends in a group. And so I think what I've seen is people want to get into a group, have a group, have a tribe, and this is welcoming. This is a welcoming thing. Unfortunately, it's not something that's a healthy welcoming thing. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, I can do it here and there. And, and you know what? For the, there before the grace of God go you, because around 
89 to 92% of the people that do it the first time are going to do it a second. And then it just keeps getting more and more and more and more. And here's my truth. Like I said, I had done every drug imaginable, including beauties, which are sort of like a precursor to, to methamphetamine. They're amphetamines. But when it came to meth, uh, I was at a, the first time I saw it, I was at a party in Beverly Hills with the dude that I was dating. And I don't know what, but I instinctively said in my brain, Jimmy, don't do this. Go get a drink. I don't know why, because everyone I liked was doing it. They were smoking it off of a piece of foil. And something about that smoke coming off the foil and everyone with a straw sucking in the smoke was very scary to me for some reason. And I'd seen a lot. Uh, young folks think it's never going to be me. Invincible. But I can tell you, I have picked kids up. And I say kids, you know, 20, even, even 18, 19, 25, 26. One in particular that I'm, I'm so friendly with at this point. And someone called me and said, there's this dude in the street by the AT Center no shoes. He's in trouble. And I grabbed the deputy actually. And we zoomed over and he was like six two. I don't know that he could have weighed 80 pounds. I mean, he was having these hallucinations and Tom, I, I think you can probably attest to that, that hallucinations can be a big part of this drug. Oh, totally. Especially the, yeah, the longer you're on it, the more crazy comes in to play with the whole thing. We'll return to our interview in a moment. Do you have a friend struggling with chemsex, or do you know someone who has a loved one involved in the scene? Send them this episode. Wild and Sublime is also sponsored in part by our Sublime supporter, Chicago-based Full Color Life Therapy. Therapy for all of you at FullColorLifeTherapy.com. If you would like to be a Sublime supporter, showcasing you and your business and supporting us at the same time, contact us at info at wildandsublime.com. Back to my interview with Jimmy Palmieri and Tom Pardo. In this portion, we discuss hookup apps, the sometimes fatal additive fentanyl, the importance of harm reduction, and Jimmy and Tom's work with sober event making in West Hollywood. I then asked Jimmy about hashtag boom and hashtag sizzle, the West Hollywood drug and alcohol-free events he produces with the city. We then go on to discuss how people become comfortable again with sex and kink once they are off meth and other substances. I want to talk a little bit about the culture of hookup apps, dating apps, among LGBTQ folks, primarily gay men, and the predatory nature that's going on here. What are gay men seeing when they're going through the hookup apps around like Tina, which is, of course, a slang for crystal meth? Like, what are people seeing in the descriptors? And how does the cycle sort of begin? The cycle of I am buying drugs from the same person I'm having sex with. <laughs> Or getting huh. drugs from the same person I'm having sex with. I mean, it sounds like it's just a carnival ride. We got the three, le the PMP, right? Yeah. That's like the big primary one that everybody is wary of. And I think that everything changes after 3 a.m., right? I mean, there's a lot of shift that happens in terms of who's online and what's going on. And But, you know, these days there are rooms you can go to. There are apps that you can go, you can party and play and you'll be filmed while doing it. And there's a lot of crazy stuff out there. So what I can tell you is, and most people know I do this, I create profiles on most of the apps and maybe for 24 hours, maybe a week, maybe two weeks, whatever, all different profiles. And they all are geared towards a different thing. And I look for words like clouds, blowing cloud or Tina or 
PMP or get to the point, get to the point, meaning let's, you know, we're going to be slamming that night. Slamming means? Slamming means uh, IV drug use. Mm -hmm. And when I spot that, I'll open with some conversation. It'll never be drug oriented. It'll actually never even be sexually oriented. How are you doing tonight? And I'll get a response. And I'll usually send a link to Tweaker's project page and say, hey, there's a lot of people waiting for you here. Come and say hi. And something like that. And listen, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But what Tom said, everything after three is negotiable. Listen, two at 10 is a 10 at two. And everybody looks gorgeous after. Wait, wait, a, a two, a two, okay, gotcha. <laughs> you said it so quick. I'm like, a two. that's your New York coming at me. <laughs> Funny. It's like, oh, this looks great. Let me get myself into <laughs> this mess. Mm-hmm. How can I hurt myself more tonight? Like, well, I'll right. go this but you know, also it is a predatory nature, and there are some folks that are using that using folks' addictive behavior or nature in order to entice them over for the purpose of sexual favors or the purpose of getting them high and and using them and. And I've seen that over and over again. And it takes a certain kind of of bad person to want to hurt another gay brother. I don't understand it. I never will. But it exists. It exists in the straight world. It exists in the gay world. Yeah. And, you know, I was reading more detail about the Ed Buck story that it was so shocking and horrifying to me. I couldn't even believe it. Ed Buck, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, arrested for the homicide, multiple homicides. Wasn't that it? Not one, not two. But two and a half because one escaped. Now I know right. this gentleman for many, many years. And these are these years. are young black. This is a white man of power perpetrating on young black gay men. Here's how I look at that story. And I know Ed for many years and I knew him as a good guy. And he would tell me, you know, whenever I think of relapsing, I just look on my shoulder and see you. And I'm like, well, good. If that's what keeps you sober, keep seeing me. I'll give you a picture, post it, tape it to your shoulder. And then, you know, I hadn't seen him in a year or so and all this happened. But it's frightening how a drug could have done this type of damage to so many lives in just that apartment. Yeah. It's really tricky too now with G and other things where it's heartbreaking when you know people who are, are living a sober life and then they get enticed or whatever, they get the call to go use again. Their intention is not to go out that night and die. And that's happened so much. And so often here where these guys, they just want, they just went out to party one night and somebody hands them some G and it's, they mix it with something, they do something stupid and they just don't get up, you know? Yeah. And, and people sometimes look at those guys and they're like, well, they deserved it. They deserve that. And that makes me crazy to hear that. You know, I always call it the ick factor, addiction and recovery services. That's the ick factor. Well, that's them. That's who they are. That's not me. Why am I spending my constituent dollars on recovery services? Well, I'm glad that I live in a city that embraces the idea of recovery and rehabilitation and understands that this is the way to keep folks alive. This isn't the ick factor. This is the let's do it. Let's make sure that everyone gets a, a fair shake in the city. And we do. We give a significant amount of money to recovery services and, and rehab services and wraparound services like sober living and employment services with employers knowing that someone has a drug addiction, addiction problem, but is looking to live a, a well life. And I like living here and being a city official because this is an extraordinarily progressive city in that way. I don't know that that's happening everywhere. I believe it probably isn't. I just want to bring up a couple of stats, which are really horrifying, that in L.A. County, 
the number of deaths from 2008 to 2017. So that's that's 11 years. For crystal meth, the deaths went up by 700%. And as you both know, New York Times just had an article yesterday that last year, 2020, overdose deaths in America rose by 30%. And that is more than double. So 93,000 people died last year of overdoses, you know, and that ranges everything from opioids to meth to heroin. That is more than double the highest year of HIV deaths. That is well more than the highest year of automobile accident deaths. Well more, like more than double the highest year of gun deaths. And the most deaths of overdoses in recorded history. The most deaths of drug overdoses in the last year than all recorded history. And a lot of it, of course, we know there's fentanyl involved at this point. That's not every death. But fentanyl has uh, unfortunately infiltrated this drug and, and all drugs. Yeah. Talk a little bit about fentanyl, if you will. So, you know, fentanyl is like an anesthetic, almost a high powered anesthetic. And a grain may kill you or maybe a bump or whatever. There's no rhyme or reason on to what would kill who. But it can kill you quickly. We now give out fentanyl testing strips. And you just put a little tiny bit of your dose in some water and you dip the stick in it and it will turn a color. If it's pure, it won't turn a color if it's not. And we have those available, readily available for free. And if you're using, I have zero judgment. I have zero judgment. But if you're using, let's do some damage control. Let's at least, okay, well, this $20 is going to kill me because there's some fentanyl in it. It's a cheap filler and there's no control, of course, over it. So somebody was telling me, I don't know who it was. They were telling me yesterday, the day before, that if you get a little bit of, you know, whatever you're picking up, you might get the whole dose of fentanyl that was meant for that batch. There's no mixing. There's no controls put into place. Wow. So you you may get it all and, you know, then wow. you're a goner. Wow. Let's talk a little bit now about harm reduction versus abstinence. And really the idea here is instead of like attempting to solve the problem by getting people off of meth or off of the other various drugs, it's more about like, let's work with the issue. Jimmy, in your estimation, walk us through that. What does that look like? Is it effective to do harm reduction versus abstinence? First of all, I I don't ever... I don't support the idea of abstinence. You just need to go off of everything. It just doesn't, it's, it's not realistic. And harm reduction, or as I call it, damage control, you know, to me, is just mitigating the harm, the trouble that's going to happen. And it's going to happen. So, you know, the city, my city does needle exchange programming through some of our providers, and that's to mitigate the possibility of hep C or HIV. And some people think it's, well, no, why would we do that? Why don't we just give out drugs and let's let everybody be on. No, that's just not the way it works. If they're going to use, I want them to use a clean needle. So talk a little bit about those events and why do you think they draw so many people? So I'll start off with hashtag boom. And that it was just an idea that let's see what a sober New Year's Eve party would look like in West Hollywood. The city was on board right away because it's part of our core value system to treat everyone equally. And that includes having some socialization for folks that are in recovery. And we were praying for, I don't know, 200 people, 300 people. We wound up with 500 and it's gone up. And even though we have a 750 max capacity, 
because of fire marshal laws throughout the evening, there's usually around a thousand people that are in and out of, of boom. It's one of the biggest parties. It's one of the most fun parties and it's big. I mean, it's like any other professionally produced party with, you know, DJs and light shows and sound systems and the auditorium is converted into a club. Like literally we have it staged. So no one can say, well, this is a boring party. It's the party. And in fact, somebody in the press told me last year, it's not, are you going to boom? It's, do you have a ticket to boom? You know, it's sort of like, and everything is free, by the way. Everything is completely paid for. You just need a ticket so that we can have some control of the numbers. We allow folks in if they were using. They just can't use on site. So perhaps that evening they used and wandered across this big sober party and asked to come in. As long as they're not using there or causing a scene or trouble, they're welcome. And very possibly a seed might be planted. And then Sizzle is sort of a crazy carnival, crazy sober <laughs> carnival that takes place in Pride. And it's also about merging the other folks in the community with the people that aren't using drugs or drink for whatever reason and kind of like share openly, like, look, we're just like y'all. We're just not loaded. And it's an amazing success because folks that are sober and their friends, buddies or loved ones are at Sizzle together. It's like, I don't have to be separated from someone that I really want to be with today because I can't trust myself over at the dance floor. That doesn't work. So, you know, what we've done is we've incorporated a dance floor and a, a great DJ and we have carnival booths with actual carnival games and enormous amount of prizes. Everything is free, of course, is subsidized by the city and other providers. There's cotton candy machines. There's people on stilts. It's a crazy, crazy carnival. And it's where people want to be at this point because it's, I guess, a welcome break from the usual. And who expects American Horror Story Freak Show to be in the middle of Pride and to be the sober area of Pride and be the number at this point, the number one destination. I love it. So, Jimmy, in your estimation, what are other cities doing around harm reduction or sort of these sober social events? Are you in touch with other commissioners? Are you in touch with other folks around the world? So, you know, I'm from New York and some of my buddies in New York saw us posting on Facebook over and over and over and over again boom and sizzle. And one of my buddies there, you know, he was newly sober, maybe two or three years sober at the, at the time. And he said, how did you do this? And I said, well, you know, here's the steps. I go, you don't have to make it as grand as ours your first year, but he was able to pull some funding together. And now, you know, New York is good com competition for us with the sober party. And I'm really proud of watching what he did. He also did the same thing at Pride. They had a sober area and it was enormously successful. Same thing with Boom and Sizzle. The carnival and the party are there, but they're superfluous to me being able to give out the outreach. Like, you know, 10,000 condoms at Boom, 5,000 responses to drug surveys at Sizzle. The, these are the purpose why they're there. The outreach is always the takeaway. The fun is what draws them in. At the end of the night, when Pride is settling down and people are leaving Sizzle because the, the festival's closing and I'm hanging out at a table having a cigarette and I'm like, this is my life. I want to be a carny. I want to be a carny in a sober, <laughs> in a sober carnival because this is a blast, you know? <laughs> and I'm covered with tattoos anyway, so I sort of fit in. <laughs> we also have, you know, like LFK, the Leather Fetish Kink meetings for guys that get hooked on meth 
they go out and they have this extraordinary heightened sense of sexual experience and then they get sober and they they long for that they long to have that again and they feel like the only way they can have it again is if they go use again and we have programs or meetings anyway where we actually sit down and we talk about like it's totally possible and it's a reality for some of us today to have that kind of sexual experience without the drug and there's a process that we have to take and we're going to help you learn how to do that if you want it i love that you're saying that tom because i think it's one i can say it's 100 true for myself that so much of what i wanted or experienced on drugs and alcohol has been i have found tenfold twentyfold not using And it is, it's simply a process of learning how the body works, how the mind works without being under the influence and then moving it in that direction, allowing the pleasure to happen, to unfold as it needs to, instead of like jacking it up with uh, a substance. And I think it's really hard for folks to understand that you are completely capable of having mood altering experiences without altering substances. It's true. It's true. Ah. And sometimes they're even they're even on a higher plane of spirituality when you're in the middle of that. And and I've heard that time and time again. Of course they are. And you're also you remember them. Hello. Yeah. You, you remember them and they're, they're and you remember, remember them. And you might even remember some names, you know. You can actually feel them the next day, <laughs> you know, or two days later, or three days later, you know, you you yeah. can do that. But it requires one to really know oneself. And that takes, that's where the time takes, I think. That's where a lot of the work happens. I got to know myself before I know what gets my dick hard. And then I'll be on my way to find out like how to get to those places. Absolutely. You know, one of the recovery houses that I like, they will tell their clients to masturbate in bed because they want them to understand you're here, you're sober and start to get used to your body. Start to understand what is turning you on. And you're not using a drug. You're here sober and you're still going to be able to have a climax. Work on understanding yourself rather than numbing yourself. And I think that's a progressive, but be brilliant. Oh, my God. That is absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention is, and this is getting back to the ick factor. I think it's really as with the beginning of the AIDS crisis and, Mm -hmm. oh, this is just a gay thing. I really feel it's important for me to say, folks who are listening, this is not about one community. This is so spreading out. This is such a fucking problem. And the title of the episode is about chemsex, but this is not about this. It's just so big. This is such a vast problem. So if you're listening and you're thinking, oh, this does not affect me, it will soon enough. Tom and I did a panel and Tom, if you remember so many people in the audience, they didn't use, but they were affected by someone's use. They knew someone that was using, there wasn't really anyone there that had no idea of what meth was because they've been affected by a loved one shrapnel, you know? Mm-hmm. True. And I feel bad for the rest of the planet. Those who are not identifying as gay or the crowd that we're talking about primarily, we have posters on the corners that talk about all of this stuff that we're discussing right here. We have support visibility. 
right? How would you feel if you were a straight person living in the burbs and you had this issue? Where would you go? What would you do? I think that's terrifying. As we wrap up, any things you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? To your listeners, if you are having some problems and you want to join the Tweakers Project uh, Facebook page, just go to facebook.com and look up The Tweakers, T-W-E-A-K-E-R-S Project. And all you have to do is answer two questions, why you want to be in there and, and one other personal question. No one will see it but me or one of the other five administrators, and you'll, you'll be put in immediately and you'll have an open forum 24-7. It's a 24-7 meeting live. And I, there's another group that I run that's called Crystal Meth Awareness Group, and that's for people that just want some awareness and either using or not maybe family members that need to know what's going to happen next. And the same thing, answer two questions and then you're in. So these are available to you. Facebook, most people have it. And there's like 7,000 in Tweakers Project, six or 7,000. And there's like 12 or 14,000 in my Crystal Meth Awareness Group. Just join them. Mm, thank you, Jimmy. Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. I just want to comment on what Jimmy said. Jimmy comes from a place of ego-free. It's not about making you change in any way, shape, or form. It's really about helping you when you need it. I love that. So follow through. I, I'd say call me, but nobody has my number to everybody out there, but call Karen and then she can call me and we can all talk. I don't know. I always love talking with y'all. And I think this is a really valuable service that you provide, Karen, for everybody. It's about being out of the shame, you know, and into action in a positive way. And I love that. You're quite welcome. I'm truly grateful, Karen, for what you're doing and for including me in on this amazing conversation. You bet. Thanks. I appreciate it so much. Thanks, folks. And thank you, Jimmy Palmieri and Tom Pardo. I hope to talk to you both again soon. For links to The Tweakers Project, CMA, and more, go to our show notes. The work I do in biofield tuning, an energy modality that uses sound waves to help repattern your bioelectric field, can support you in getting out of stuck behaviors and become more aware of different choices. One person said, Karen has empathic presence and is a trustworthy ally in my healing process. If you are interested in working with me remotely or in person, or learning more about my weekly group biofield tuning sessions on Zoom on a variety of topics, go to karen-yates.com. That link is in the show notes. Well, that's it, folks. Have a delightfully pleasurable week. Thank you for listening. If you know someone who might be interested in this episode, send it to them. Do you like what you heard? Then give us a nice review on your podcast app. You can follow us on social media at Wild and Sublime and sign up for newsletters at wildandsublime.com. I'd like to thank associate producer Julia Williams and design guru Jean-Francois Gervais. Theme music by David Ben Porat. This episode was edited by the Creative Imposter Studios. Our media sponsor is Rebellious Magazine, Feminist Media at rebelliousmagazine.com. Ooh.